Today, February 2nd, 2022, an article was released in the magazine Science for the People regarding recent accusations about Edward O. Wilson. We at Big Biology think that the material covered in that article deserves careful attention, and in the near future, you'll be hearing more from us about it. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters and remind listeners that as a nonprofit, we rely on your help to keep making Big Biology. To support us, please consider making a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. Another way to help us is to recommend Big Biology to a friend or family member, or to spread the word on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We want to share these ideas with as many people as possible, and growing our audience will ensure that we keep great episodes coming. It also helps if you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and to comment on and rate our show. With five stars. And of course, if you want to hear a particular guest or an episode on your favorite topic, let us know. You can get in touch with us on our social media pages or through the website. And now, here's the show. Over the holiday period, biology lost one of its most prolific and celebrated writers and thinkers, E.O. Wilson. Wilson made huge contributions to biology, from his theory of island biogeography, to his treatise on the ants of the world, to his creative and passionate advocacy for conservation. Wilson was also one of the main reasons I became a biologist myself. If you haven't, read his book Naturalist. And he was such an exceptional writer that he won two Pulitzer Prizes for his books. Wilson's writing was so engaging because he showed strong narrative skill and brought complex concepts like biodiversity into the public eye in a powerful way. Good stories, be they fictional or scientific, have strong narrative arcs. They have ups and downs, twists and turns, and unexpected catastrophes that threaten to derail everything. But the protagonists persevere and overcome. Wilson's book often had those, but so does the story of life on Earth. From life's origins and early diversification through climate upheaval and mass extinctions to the more recent evolution of our taxa, the vertebrates, the mammals, the primates, and we humans, life's story has been quite a ride. On today's episode, Henry G. takes us on that wild ride, in many ways sharing his view with a roller coaster version of Earth's history. In his latest book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth, he recounts the greatest story ever told, at least on this planet. As a long-term editor at the journal Nature, Henry has had a front-row seat for the last few decades of life's roller coaster. This position has given him fantastic perspectives on recent advances in biology. And like E.O. Wilson, he is also an excellent and prolific writer. In fact, we spent a decent amount of time talking with Henry about why he wanted to write this book, how he came to develop his captivating style, and especially what can be done to improve the notoriously dry and often impenetrable forms we see in science. I think there is a feeling in science that if people write in a conversational way, they can't really be serious. Uh, but um, uh, I do like to see papers that are written well, succinctly, just do what they say on the tin. And occasionally I get a paper like that, and it's just a joy. Most of our chat with Henry today, though, is about his book, which is a genuinely whirlwind tour of four billion years of Earth's history, including a glance ahead to where life might be headed in the future. And in case you're wondering, of course, dinosaurs were a big part of Henry's book. In fact, how dinosaurs grew to be so big and why no other animals on land have reached that size since were some of his and our favorite parts of his story. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. And this is Big Biology. Well, Henry, um, let's jump into the book. Thank you so much for coming on to the show to talk about your new book, A um, Very Short History of Life on Earth. Why'd you write this book? And why a very short history? 
it, it had been hanging around in the back of my mind for quite a long time uh, that I wanted to write a, a, a little book about the history of life. In my mind, I call it Henry's History of Life, but it was just stayed in the back of my mind with all the kind of semi-chewed over and discarded ideas that one has um, that one might get out at a future date. Uh, until I was in the nature office. Do you remember those days when we used to go to offices? The office. <laughs> the office. Shocking. Uh, well, um, well, I was in. I was in the nature office with my colleague David Adam, who, who uh, was at the time. He's uh, he's left now. Uh, was the leader writer, and he writes uh, quite a few interesting books. And I used to go and interrupt him, uh, and we talk about books. And he suggested that I write a book about all the amazing fossils, of the papers concerning which have passed across my desk in the uh, several decades I've been working at Nature. And I thought, that's a good idea. So I, I wrote the book. But to cut a long story short, it wasn't quite the book that you see. Um, uh, the book that uh, reached my agent was rather a long ramble, uh, <laughs> but we, we cut it down and took out all the rude parts and, um, and all the digressions and, um, and put the jokes at the back. Uh, so that's how, that's how it happened. Uh, but it's kind of an obvious thing to do. I mean, uh, other people have done these things, but um, it's just, a, I think in the end, the reason I did it was I do like a good story and this is the best story uh, that you can tell. Uh, and I enjoyed writing it. It was the, I've written a number of books. Uh, this was the easiest book I've ever written. It just kind of wrote itself. It was uh, just a joy to do. Hmm, that's great. So, so who are you, who did you have in mind as the audience when you're writing it? Um, I always have a particular person in mind, and that's my dad, who's um, 86 and a voracious reader, and, um, and with my mother, my sternest critics. Uh, now, my father's read it twice now and listened to the audio book, so he's quite happy. So I think I've, you know, job done. What what did your mom think of it? If she's your sternest critic, oh, um, she 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 read the first draft um, with all the entertaining digressions and um, in which I had a lot of anecdotes about uh, real people and real paleontologists and the travels I've been on. And she said, "Well, it's a very nice dear, but who apart from those mentioned would really care?" Uh, she's very um, uh, forthright. <laughs> my mother. Uh, it sounds astute and and. Particular way, yeah. So, so I thought, hmm. So uh, that was one of the. But my agent was a lot more tactful. Uh, <laughs> but um, we got to the same place eventually. So, Henry, um, I hope this isn't embarrassing, but uh, I, I just the, the writing in the book is absolutely fantastic. And as a scientist aspiring to be able to write in such a way, I, if it's okay, I'd really like to read a little section. Um, oh wow! Yeah. Hopefully, that's right. you know inspire people to go out and grab the book. Um, this is this is at the end of chapter five. Um, the gates of hell, a jar in China, thrown extravagantly wide in Siberia, had sucked almost all life into the abyss. The land was turned into bare, silent desert. Little plant life remained, clinging to the wreckage of what was largely a dying planet. The ocean was all but dead. The reefs were gone. The seafloor clothed with a stinking carpet of slime. It was as if life had been catapulted back to the Precambrian. But life would return, and when it did, it would be as the most colorful, riotous, carnival of splendor that the world had seen yet. Where did you learn to write like that? That's fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, it's like, it's like, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? It's <laughs> practice. People do ask me, how, 
about writing and what do you do uh, and I say what you got to do is uh, you've got to write every day uh, I mean I've read some of my earlier stuff that I've had published and some of it's quite good but some of it's a bit spotty and some of it could have been better and it could have been shorter uh, but uh, writing is like any craft or skill like shooting hoops or playing the guitar or anything um, if you have talent at it you can always improve it by practice and you it's all you know your piano teacher would say you've got to practice your scales and arpeggios every day and it's absolutely true so people who are writers generally write they can't help it no matter if they're good or bad they're always writing uh, and I was writing I've been writing all my life uh, but these days there's so much opportunity to write and get stuff out there so even if it's just a, uh, a Facebook entry or a shopping list or a haiku on the unreliability of the number 27 bus to Kensington High Street or, or anything. Um, <laughs> uh, writing a blog, I know blogs are a bit passe these days, is always a, a good discipline. It doesn't matter if anybody reads it, but a good sign of an unwillingness to write is an untended blog. So I, I, I try to keep my blog updated for the th three people who read it. Um, and uh, who, they like it, which is fine. But uh, of course, the the only person for whom you should write is yourself. If anybody else likes it, that's uh, that's a bonus. I think blogs have now been uh, in competition with podcasts, right? There's a lot of people making podcasts, and so they're no longer writing things down. I, so. I, I think I think so. And and the next generation, my 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 daughter, who's 21, is now into TikTok and makes little videos of herself doing things. And uh, I, I'm not sure I've yet grasped TikTok yet although I probably should. Well, let, let, let me ask also about a potential alternative book that perhaps you could have written, and and that would be something you know much longer and more detailed that had like lots of pictures of all of these fossils and sort of much more detailed information about the individual species and stuff. Did you consider that? Well, a lot of people have said that. Um, some people like the book as it is, which is like a bedtime story. I didn't want to write a book with too many pictures because there are lots of books like that about about the history of life also i'm uh, a little wary about pictures because uh, pictures of extinct forms don't show you the extinct form they show you an, an artist's impression of the restoration of a reconstruction of the extinct form i mean all you have of a squidgy saurus is its left hind toenail and you can reconstruct the whole of it and show that it has green and purple stripes and roaring loudly so i'm not quite sure how much these a lot of these restorations actually tell you, apart from just decoration. Uh, and I know this because I've actually written a book like this. I did it uh, with a fantastic paleo artist called Luis Ray. I wrote a book called A Field Guide to Dinosaurs. We were put together by a publisher to do this. And Luis is fantastic, and he does dinosaurs in a very colourful way, as if they're all going to a fiesta with feathers and plumes everywhere. But we were both quite explicit in the book. We said that this is a work of fiction. You know, dinosaurs might have been quite different, but we, we can't know this. But I did say to my my publishers, um, hey, I'm getting all these comments. People want a bigger book with pictures. So maybe the next book will be a slightly longer history of life on Earth with pictures. And they said, well, let's see. Let's see how this one sells first. So anyone out there who wants a book with pictures, make sure you buy this book first. Because, oh, nice uh, plug. And sell lots of copies. So, <laughs> so my, my publishers will want to do a, a one with pictures. And of course, then you get who 
you get to illustrate it. I mean, I know several artists. I know Luis. I know Ray Troll, a fantastic paleo artist. But, you know, they're so different from each other. And I know various other. They've all got their styles. So where do you start? Or do you just do photographs? Or, or what do you do? So there's a, a whole other discussion about how you design this sort of thing. And I'm really a text person. So what I did when I wanted to, to talk about things that people didn't know very much about, I used rather fanciful pen portraits of things. So Lystrosaurus, which was one of my favourite animals, I described as a, uh, it had the body of a pig, the attitude to food of a golden retriever and the head of an electric can opener, which I think sums it up fairly well. Um, <laughs> That's very vivid. <laughs> uh, yeah, very vivid. So I, I, thought, I thought I'd do that. So, And um, I was thinking, when you just have text... Uh, I, I was thinking back of the, the late uh, science fiction writer Ian M. Banks, uh, who said that the wonderful thing you have as a writer um, is uh, an unlimited special effects budget. So if you want volcanoes exploding, so write volcanoes exploding. If you want great apocalyptic disasters, you write them into existence and it doesn't cost you anything. Um, there's no CGI, no um, miniatures, no, you don't have to go on location anywhere, you just do it. Uh, and that's one of the, the great things about um, writing, is you sit there, or as I sit here in my secret underground location under an extinct volcano with my white cat going, hello, Mr Bond, we meet at last. Um, <laughs> I, I can just write stuff into existence, it's great. Um, so putting pictures in, that requires another level of thought, which I haven't thought about much. Maybe I should. Well, that, yeah, that, as you say, that's the next book. And I, I promise we want to talk about the contents of the book. But let me ask you one more question about this sort of your philosophy and doing this writing. You're an editor at Nature. And to me, as a professional scientist, that journal and most journals remain almost impenetrable sometimes in understanding the contents of what's in their pages. So how do you sort of put together the, the power and value of writing in the way that you did in this book with a conventional way that we pros do it in journals like Nature? Um, well, I wish that scientists in professional journals would write more accessibly than they do. Uh, people are taught to write badly. Um, it, it, I remember Isaac Asimov, uh, you know, the late scientist. I talk about these dead people all the time. It's because I'm, I'm nearly 60. You see, all the, most people I know are dead. <laughs> I mean, there's just us three here and everyone else is dead we can talk about what we like we can say anything um but isaac asimov the late science fiction writer he put himself through graduate school by selling science fiction to pulp magazines i mean from from his teens until his late 20s he would wrote most of his classic output and he sold them to uh, uh, pulp magazines and that taught him how to write but the time came for him to write up his doctorate dissertation and he he said he was worried he'd spent all these years learning how to write well. He was afraid he wouldn't be able to write badly enough <laughs> to, to pass his PhD. Um, I, I think there is a feeling in science that if people write in a conversational way, they can't really be serious. Uh, but um, uh, I do like to see uh, papers that are written well, succinctly, just do what they say on the tin. And occasionally I get a paper like that, and it's just a joy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I spend a lot of time with, with new students that are coming into the lab, you know, just trying to shake them out of this this desire that they have to sound scientific, right? They need to sound a particular exactly. way. Exactly. Uh, there's a long, a long time ago, I did a, uh, I taught 
I had a sabbatical and I taught a graduate course on science publication at UCLA. This was in 96 and some of my students are distinguished professors, although that was probably, I probably they would have probably been distinguished professors earlier if I hadn't held them back. <laughs> but I said the great thing about the US liberal art system is you can and have to, I believe, do a whole variety of courses in the arts and humanities as well as the sciences, which that doesn't exist in, in the UK. So I said to my, uh, my, my young ch uh, charges, go and audit a course in English literature. Find, uh, find out how Jane Austen and John Keats did it, how they managed to write encompass such a wonderful range of emotion and fact with great economy and style. So uh, I, th I think a lot of scientists don't read enough good literature. I felt this myself because, you know, at school, you're learning how to be a scientist. So, you know, you're working to be a scientist. So you just read science. But, um, you know, some years after I started being at Nature, I had a, a yen to go to night school and do a high school exam in English literature. Now, in England, uh, your, the school exams you do to basically get into university are called A-levels or advanced levels, and you only do three or four of these, and I was just doing sciences because, you know, you either do sciences or humanities, and but I always wanted to do English literature because I was always writing, I always wanted to read and write, but I couldn't do it. I had to do chemistry because it was timetabling, and it would have looked weird. Why have you done chemistry in English, they would have said at on the university admissions. <laughs> what do you really want to do with yourself, they would have said. You can't decide. No, exactly. So I said to myself, being very wise, age 17, I'll do English literature in later life. So... When I was 33, I suddenly sat up in bed and said, oh, my God, <laughs> later life has arrived. And my wife sleepily said, well, you better go and sign up at the adult education college. So I did. And I, for two years, I studied Keats and Shakespeare and Dickens and Jane Austen and Arthur Miller and um, all kinds of stuff. And I learned how to appreciate literature. I learned how to do literary criticism. And it was a godsend. And I remember having to take two days off to go and sit the exam. So there I was. It was July. It was hot. But in the school gymnasium, it was freezing. And I had this rickety desk and I was surrounded by all these spotty youths. And I had to write with a pen, you know, with ink. What, what is this that what you speak? <laughs> pen and ink? Yeah, well, yeah. It says, write everything you know about Macbeth in 45 minutes. And I said, Henry, I said, after A-level physical chemistry, you promised yourself you'd never put yourself through this. But I did. And my colleague <laughs> said, if you don't get an alpha, you're fired. But um, I, I did. And it gave me a really good appreciation of scientific papers or, or any work of literature. It's there to have a purpose. It has to have a beginning beginning, a middle and an end. There has to be a kind of narrative arc. You have to keep the reader with you. Actually, I think papers are better than they used to be. Um, I, I think they're more, I think because now you can put all the hard stuff now in supplementary information or online, which, um, you know, only a few of your colleagues will want to look at anyway, you can then make the kind of front page of the paper as intelligible as you, as you yeah, can. Sort of boil it down to the, the story arc. Yeah. yeah. So, so I have to say life has, maybe it's just I've read so much of this stuff, but life seems easier than it did ages ago where I would dread opening a paper and think, 
crikey, what, I've got to make a decision on this and I don't understand it. What is this about? Um, and break <laughs> yeah. my head against this unintelligible baby. The editor's dilemma. So, so, you know, what with the internet and I have my colleagues around the world and I can send it off to them and said, look, I can't make head or tail of this. What do you think you know about this sort of thing, Ge genomes or plants or whatever? Anyway. There we are. Um, so that's another very long answer to your short, innocent question. You see, it's very dangerous asking me a question. <laughs> you never know where you're going to get. Well, let's uh, let's maybe turn to the book itself and the, the sort of contents and story arc of of. The book, um, I would say, you know, if I had to characterize it, it, it's an exhilarating and sort of kaleidoscopic overview of the entirety of life's history on Earth up to the present and then into the future. Um, but I guess I just wanted to ask, first of all, so, you know, each individual incident or element in that story arc, starting from the beginning of life on Earth, is it goes by very rapidly. And so, so what you're left with is this sort of feeling of the, you know, the the overall arc and uh, of evolutionary diversification, you know, new new levels of biological organization, and and much of it seems to be aimed at you know sort of eventually getting to the emergence of, of mammals and then and then humans. But so maybe let's just start of all of those anecdotes in there. What what is your favorite thing? What was your favorite chapter to write? Oh gosh, that's such a hard one because each one had its um, joys. Uh, oh, I mean, I can pick them at random. I liked writing about the dinosaurs. I mean, everyone loves dinosaurs, but I didn't want to do it in a very conventional way. What I did with the dinosaurs, I didn't write at all chronologically. I wrote it in a thematic way. I started the chapter on dinosaurs saying dinosaurs were always built to fly. So then I explored the physiology of dinosaurs to show that even the great big lumbering four-legged dinosaurs had the kind of structure and physiology and anatomy uh, that would... Um, be helpful for a flying animal, you know, the birds. Um, and some had feathers and uh, some had wishbones and some of these things. And uh, some had this hot running metabolism uh, and they their bodies were f air cooled. They were full of air sacs that allowed them to grow a lot bigger than they otherwise might without boiling themselves from the inside out. So I enjoyed writing that as basically a kind of exercise in physiology and talking about flight, which I find actually quite interesting, the whole engineering, the whole physics aspect of flight. Uh, and that allowed me to recall my undergraduate days. Uh, I was at the University of Leeds in Northern England, and my professor was uh, McNeil Alexander, another dead person, although he was very much alive at the time. And he was uh, a pioneer in animal mechanics. He would be, he was a physicist and he would be interested in how animals move. And he set me a, a project, a library project about flying reptiles. And I enjoyed doing that hugely, learning about things I didn't know about, like lift and drag and gliding and parachuting and um, uh, lots, uh, lots of equations and stuff that I'm not usually very familiar with. But even now, I, I remember that with such fondness that nature, I'm the person who deals with manuscripts on biomechanics and flight. And I've just, um, you know, there are one or two I've accepted recently about flying and flying things and how things fly, and which um, I'm very fond of. So I could put that knowledge into the book, into the chapter about dinosaurs. Uh, so that's just one. I mean, I could probably 
uh, wax lyrically about any of the other ones, but that's just uh, one picked out of the bag. Well, can we can we stick on that one, Henry? And uh, that was my favorite chapter. Um, I think because you say everybody loves dinosaurs, and when I was little, I was completely enamored, and I continue to be. Um, but my favorite part of that book was really, you know, I think you gave one of the most concise and compelling explanations for why dinosaurs got so big and why mammals, at least on land, never did. Can you connect all of those dots for the listeners? It's just fascinating. You said a lot of the pieces, but but put it all together. Yeah, it started a long time ago as a paper I read by a colleague called Martin Sander, who was talking about dinosaur physiology and why they got so big. And I put it a lot together with what we've since learned about birds. Dinosaurs and many reptiles, uh, they breathe in and then they breathe out. Now, we do this, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in breathe out. Failure to master this and your (laughs) efforts to reach nirvana won't get very far. But what birds and some lizards uh, 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 do, and I think at crocodiles, I'm not quite sure someone will write in and tell me uh, I'm wrong, I do hope so, is once they breathe in, the air doesn't go straight out again. It goes into a series from the lungs into a series of air pockets that ramify through the entire animal surrounding the internal organs, even into the bones. So this is why um, uh, birds have these thin, hollow bones. They're actually full of air, uh, and uh, why, if you lift up a a chicken, they're actually relatively light. I mean, if if a chicken uh, was as dense as it looks, it would be like a you know, like a bowling ball. Instead, it's like a basketball. Um, uh, And uh, also... These air sacs go around the internal organs. Now, this is particularly important around the liver. The liver gets very hot because it does most of the chemistry in the body. That's where all the food comes from the intestines to be broken down and repurposed and uh, where all the actual metabolism uh, goes on. That's the equivalent of the smokestack industries of the body. A lot of heat comes out of the liver. Now, in mammals, the way we get it is it's all passed to the bloodstream, which has to go through the body and uh, pick up more heat and then it has to go to the lungs and be breathed out as hot air all of which kind of compounds the problem especially if the liver is a long way from the surface and i'll come to that in a minute but in dinosaurs the the lungs ineffectively reached all the way into the liver so the surface of the liver now in big dinosaurs the liver could be the size of a small car directly contact could shed heat directly into the air and not have to go to put it into the blood, which would then have to take some of it and be not very good at it. So this has allowed dinosaurs to get so big because there's a um, there is a limit on size that if you if you are a a, a thing, and you want to grow, keeping the same shape, what you find very quickly is that your insides become much bigger relative to your outsides. It's called the surface area to volume ratio problem. So a very, very small creature the size of a cell or a dot doesn't need any particular mechanisms to get gases or nutrients in or out. It can do it through its surface because none of its insides are very far from the surface. But if you get bigger and bigger, there are your insides get further and further from the surface. So it gets harder and harder to reach the insides to to get nutrients and air in and waste gases and 
toxins out. And that's why anything larger than a tiny dot has a circulatory system, has a breathing system of some sort. But if you are like a, a regular animal with lungs and a blood system, you can get to the size of a large mammal, but you can't really get any larger because you won't be able to, to manage the volume inside but the dinosaurs managed it because they had all these air sacs that basically ramified their interiors so uh, they got around that 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 problem and that's how dinosaurs in terms of the metabolism could get so very big yeah that that's just fascinating because i mean you get you get this nice elegant explanation why no giant mammals but let me just really briefly because i know art wants to ask about insects let me just briefly turn it on its head and ask why there are no extant birds that are as big as dinosaurs? That's a very good question, and I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. It, it could Well, it could be that the mammals, by the time extant birds did their kind of major radiation in the, in, in the Cenozoic, this is just me spitting a line here, I have no idea. Mammals had evolved to be quite large. Now, as soon as the non-avian dinosaurs became extinct... Mammals, which had been the size of a raccoon or smaller for 160 million years, suddenly became quite big. And you get all sorts of strange mammals, pantodons and pantodonts and dinosaurates. They had very unclear life choices. They didn't know whether they were carnivores or herbivores, but they knew they were big and they got very big very quickly. Now, there were some very large birds some large flightless birds that um, immediately after the dinosaurs died out, these had skulls as big as the heads of horses, uh, these forest rackets. So there were some very, very large birds, but not as big as dinosaurs. But it, it's it's a good point. And you know, there's various speculative zoologists that have said that in the future, if whales die out, penguins will grow to the size of whales. But penguins don't grow, penguins don't grow to the size of whales now because they're already whales. Uh, and, um, and there were very large penguins, but maybe there weren't very big whales back in the Miocene. Who knows? This is a great conversation in relation to a, a point that I made yesterday in my entomology class. Uh, so I, I study mostly insects, and I've thought a lot about the evolution of insect body size. And, and one sort of persistent evolutionary mystery, given the vast, vast success of insects in many respects, is how small they are compared to most of the vertebrates that, that we know about. And it was funny, when you're, when you're describing the, the gas exchange system of, of dinosaurs and this sort of ramifying air sacs that go throughout the body and that allow very ready, easy exchange of heat and gases, I would say that also ex describes insect, the insect respiratory system, right? I mean, that's part of their, their success is that they have this air-filled set of tubes inside their body that allow ultra-high rates of, of oxygen delivery to the tissues where they're being used. And crikey, they, they have to have it, don't they? I mean, because of Yeah, the... and why aren't there large insects that, you know, the size of dogs or the size of, I don't know, bison? I mean, why why not? A, a starship trooper <laughs> or something. Uh, hey, and, um, and maybe, maybe it has to do with this sort of, you know, niche exclusion that you were just, just alluding to. I, I think it's to do with the way that insects are made because they're supported by an external skeleton. And in order to grow, they have to shed the skeleton and wait for the new one underneath to harden. And um, over a certain size, they probably collapse under their own weight while they were in the process of molting and forming a new skeleton. Uh, that's one thing that 
Uh, that, that seems to be the canonical explanation. It is a canonical one. But it yeah. could be that if you, if there were an, uh, a very large insect that were doing that, it would probably take a considerable amount of time, more time, maybe disproportionately more time, to harden a very large exoskeleton, which would leave the insect open to predation. But I think there's the, the proof comes in the breach with crustaceans, which are kind of, I mean, insects are kind of specialist land-going crustaceans. I mean, I don't know, you might shoot me saying that, but uh, <laughs> uh, but, but, but um, insects are a lineage that came from the crustaceans, and there are large crustaceans. Uh, much larger than insects. I mean, land crabs and lobsters. Yeah. And, and it helps, of course, to be underwater and, you know, having your weight supported by the water. But yeah. even then, they don't grow as large as, say, vertebrates. Um, but I think that might be to do with peculiarities that vertebrates have in their development that allow them to become large. Now, there are a lot, a lot of invertebrates, most invertebrates are extremely small, and, you know, a lot of insects are very, very tiny, but most invertebrates are hardly visible to the naked eye. But no vertebrate is that small. Uh, and the largest invertebrate is the colossal squid, which is colossal, but it's not as big as a whale um, or an elephant. And uh, I, I was puzzled about this until I read a review that I'd commissioned about the a vertebrate embryonic tissue called the neural crest, which is a, a, a tissue that arrives from the edges of the neural tube in the embryos it develops. And the neural crest cells migrate through the body like magic fairy dust, um, transforming all kinds of tissues into other things. The bones of the head and face are largely created by neural crest, the skin, um, quite a lot of the internal nerves, the organs, the adrenal glands, are, uh, or bits of them. And it does seem that neural crest the presence of neural crest may have been a factor in vertebrates becoming large relative to most invertebrates. Even the close invertebrate relatives of chordates, the amphioxus and tunicates, uh, the amphioxus has no sign of neural crest. Uh, tunicates might have something a bit like it, but not nearly as elaborate. And also, uh, it might be connected with the quadrupling of DNA in the vertebrate lineage. There were two separate whole genome duplications, and that might have some relationship with the body size of vertebrates compared with, say, insects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Well, thanks very much, Henry. Excellent. Thank yeah. you so much, Henry. It's really been a lot of fun. You're, you're very welcome. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to hear that too. All feedback is good feedback. On the next episode, we talk to Nick Levis and David Finnick about plasticity-led evolution. Building on older ideas from key evolutionary thinkers, including Conrad Waddington, Mary Jane West Eberhard, and others, Levis and Finnick have made the case that plasticity plays a central role in the origins and evolution of new traits. We talk with them about the theory and about their work with spadefoot toads to illustrate it. Thank you to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery for producing the episode. Thanks also to Kyle Smith for writing the script. Jordan Greer, R.B. Smith, Natasha Damright, and Brad Van Paraden for helping to produce this episode, and Keating Shameri for producing our awesome cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear.